This is episode 45 of the Popcast. Hello, welcome to the Popcast, the pop culture podcast from Vernacular. We're your hosts, Maureen and Josh Goldman. Each week, we'll dive into the latest in pop culture with our three regular segments. First, the snack bag, where we cover some smaller stories from the past week. Second, the marquee topic, where we dive in depth into one pop culture story or event. And third, the teasers, where we give our suggestions for pop culture content you might have missed, but should definitely check out. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Hi, everybody. Maureen, how are you? Good. Excited for our special episode today. Special episode because we have a special guest for the marquee topic, and we will get there. We will get there. But first, I want to say that I just enjoyed a very quick 20-minute night nap, and I am ready to go. You guys, Josh doesn't sleep normally. I do. I do. Look, I want to talk about this more because I'm going to read a book about this and it will probably be my teaser. But I just have a different body clock than you do and than most of America. So, you know. Yeah, but your family is on a different body clock. Don't you think you should try to like not sleep? You were doing something else and I was taking a night nap (laughs) and I think that's a-okay. Does anyone else take night naps out there as in between the hours of 8 and 10 p.m.? Just a quick 20 to 30 to 45 minute night nap. Sometimes longer. Sometimes longer, but not tonight. Tonight was a quick 20 minute. And look, look at me. I'm I'm jazzed now. I'm ready to go. (laughs) He's Energizer Bunny. Should we jump into the snack bag? Let's do it. First snack bag topic. This news, I know, was very exciting for Maureen because the Northwestern princess, Meghan Markle, had her royal baby the other day. She gave birth to a baby boy, seven pounds, three ounces. Hooray! She and Prince Harry are the proud parents of a new royal baby. They named the baby today. Today is May 8th when we're recording this, and they named the baby Archie Harrison, and then whatever his last name is, being a prince or whatever he's going to be. Is Harrison Harry's name? I don't know. Maybe. Well, first of all, excited for the couple. Did you see a picture of the baby? There was a picture. There oh, was one I haven't picture. seen the picture yet. All there I saw was the birth announcement. There was just one picture with the... I heard that they scrapped the standing on the front steps, like, baby picture moment, which Kate has done for all of her babies. Yeah. In fact, they waited a whole two days to come out. So she had a normal recovery time in the hospital. But I bet you that Prince Harry didn't have to sleep on some dumb little tiny bed like I did. Probably not. Well, the other thing about the, the birth here was that Meghan Markle came out with her bump still fully visible, which I think was pretty interesting for people because when Kate had come out with her babies, there was like no sign of a bump. And as you know, having been pregnant with a baby and having birthed a baby, there you still have a bump after you give birth. That's true. But I will say everyone's body is different and everyone carries differently. So I definitely had a bump. Like I still probably looked like four months pregnant when I left the hospital. If Megan did, totally normal. But if Kate didn't, that's also normal too. There are some women who just carry differently or are more svelte to begin with or, you know, have different muscle structures because it's all about like the way your body kind of expands and genetics plays into it. So I definitely think it's awesome that Megan was proud to show her post-baby delivery bump, um, but I wouldn't fault Kate for not having one. No, I didn't mean we should fault her, but I think that it's just... It's cool that she did feel like she could come out and Heck didn't yeah. need to didn't need to hide anything. Well, now I'm she looking at this. She just made a little baby prince. She's now I'm a lot looking to be at this of. picture again, and it's just so terrible of the baby. You can't even see the baby. It's like the teeniest little bit of skin that you can see. I mean, see. she looks pretty darn glam. I did not look like that. Well, look. To be honest, she she's, probably she's, has you a guys, makeup team. She's beautiful. She's in a white dress. I'm sorry. Tell me what woman comes out of the hospital in white anything? You're basically wearing like. <laughs> mesh underwear we can talk about this on another post but she looks great baby can't see him non-existent harry looks happy happy. we're i'm i'm pumped for them yeah so congratulations to the royal couple amy schumer also had a baby too the same day i think or maybe the day before yes and her instagram picture i loved because amy schumer keeping it real posted a picture of her looking like sweaty and that she just like delivered a baby and i say you go amy schumer because that's Real life. She said she had the real royal baby. Yeah. Which I thought was kind of funny. Should we move on to our next snack bag topic? Yeah. So a couple weeks ago, we did a marquee topic about Game of Thrones, and Maureen and I have been watching the final season, and there was something that happened in the latest episode that transcended even people who didn't watch the show. 
Now, I didn't catch this when we watched I it. I didn't either. I heard about it at work the next day. But what happened was, is that in a very pivotal scene in the show, very dramatic scene, they were at a feast and there was a Starbucks coffee cup that somehow made it onto the set. They have not confirmed it was Starbucks. There was a coffee cup. Yeah. Okay. It, it could have been any, right? It could have been craft services. Could've it could have been, been Starbucks. It was just the typical coffee cup with the lid. Very, very recognizable. And... It somehow it made it onto the set. It made it onto camera. It made it into the take that <laughs> it the made editors it onto chose. The table between John and Daenerys. Yes. So between two of the main characters, if you don't watch the show, it was just really funny when the next day there were so many articles about how the show that spends tens of millions of dollars on each episode has CGI dragons and and huge battle scenes somehow managed to miss a pretty obvious cup now we didn't see it but when you look back at the, at the screenshots and and people posting about it it's pretty clear it's definitely out of place my favorite part of this article that josh shared with me was <laughs> the ending where they were like who is the person whose cup that was who was like the poor soul who was like oh shoot i left my cup there let me just remove this and get rid of it without telling anyone that this maybe needs to be reshot. And it could have been one of the actors for all we know. Well, the thing about filmmaking, if you've never done it, I mean, it's really, really hard to get continuity right. And it's hard to to catch every single thing. Now, this seems pretty obvious, but there are tons of moving pieces in a TV show. So it's, it's only interesting that, you know, when they were editing the show and everybody was watching a cut of it, that not one person watched it because... Now that it has been pointed out, HBO went back, re-edited that part of the episode, and removed the coffee cup digitally. And so now if you go to try to watch it, it's not there on HBO Go or their HBO streaming That's service. Funny. Yeah. Well, it, it was not a surprise that they went back and did this. It's such an easy fix. I mean, even a novice in, you know, effects work could remove a coffee cup from a single frame or two. Anyway, I just thought it was really funny. People who don't even watch the show were, were making up stories about the journey this coffee cup took to make it onto Game of Thrones. So anyway, pretty funny. Check out the article we're going to post in the show notes to see a picture and some people's reactions to this rogue coffee cup. Okay, last snack bag item this week. I read this article and I just wanted to bring it up because I keep reading what I think is the same article, but it turns out it's different. So Maureen, you remember Avatar, the film that came out in 2009. It is yes. currently still the biggest movie of all time. It was shocking to me. Made $2.8 billion worldwide. Now, it may get eclipsed by Avengers Endgame. Avengers Endgame is well on its way at this point. But for now, Avatar is still the number one film of all time. So obviously, after its first movie, James Cameron, the director, said, I'm going to make a sequel. Everybody said, okay, makes sense. You made a ton of money. The sequel still hasn't come out. It's 2019, and the last thing that I read is that the movie has been delayed yet again to 2021. There Have they are, shot the movie? I don't know. I can't really find any information about this. And here's the thing. There is going to be an Avatar 2, an Avatar 3, an Avatar 4, and an Avatar 5. And apparently, they're going to shoot them all back to back to back to back. So there are going to be tons of Avatar movies shooting at once. I just don't... Does, why do we need five avatars? Does anybody, Do we need more than one? Now, I can get why they gave him a sequel. I mean, it made a ton of money. Yeah, but so, shouldn't they see how the sequel performs before they commit to three, four, and five? Well, they've, they've committed to five total Avatar movies. Now, my other thing is, does anybody really care? I mean... <laughs> I don't even remember the first one. We should rewatch it and do an episode. We, we, we should do that. That's a good idea. I just don't... You know, it's one of those things where I saw it once in theaters... I remember being... I remember their tails connecting. Wasn't there a famous line about, like, I see you? Really? I see? I don't even remember. I just remember blue creatures and I don't even some remember sort the premise. Of, no, I don't either. So that that's what I mean. You know, it's one of those things where does someone want a sequel 12 years after the original where you don't really even remember the first one? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure we'll see the, the next one at some point. Maybe not in theaters. Maybe. But I just seem to think, like, do we really need a sequel to Avatar? No. Before we move on to our special marquee topic where we're going to have a special guest, let's hear a quick word from one of our sponsors. Sponsor. Do you ever listen to an episode of the podcast and think, man, I'd love to give podcasting a try. Or maybe you think to yourself, that Josh, he's a hack. I could do my own show about pop culture. I'd want to keep Maureen though. She's great. Well, I've got good news for you. 
Anchor, the very platform we use for the podcast, is the easiest way to make a podcast. Their platform is super simple to use and gives you everything you need to make your show in one place, either on your phone or on your computer. And the best part? It's completely free to use. They have the tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast, and they'll take care of distribution so you can make your voice heard everywhere from Apple Podcasts to Spotify to Google Podcasts and more. You can also make money from your podcast and get this, there is no minimum listenership required to start making money. So what are you waiting for? Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Okay, back to the show. All right, everybody, for the marquee topic this week, we are doing a deep dive into the 22nd film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Avengers Endgame. This thing on? Hey, Miss Potts. If you find this recording, don't feel bad about this. Part of the journey is the end. Just for the record, being adrift in space with zero promise of rescue is more fun than it sounds. Food and water ran out four days ago. Oxygen will run out tomorrow morning. That'll be it. When I drift off, I will dream about you. Thanos did exactly what he said he was going to do. He wiped out 50% of all living creatures. We lost, all of us. We lost friends, we lost family. We lost a part of ourselves. This is the fight of our lives. This is gonna work, Steve. I know it is. Cause I don't know what I'm gonna do if it doesn't. Last week, Maureen and I gave our brief thoughts after seeing the film, but I will warn you right now, if you have not seen the film and you want to see it, please turn off this podcast right now, bookmark it, and come back because we will be spoiling the movie big time, and we'll also be talking a little briefly about the forthcoming Spider-Man Far From Home film that will officially close out the first phase of Marvel's world domination and usher in a new phase of films from the Behemoth Film Company. And today... For the Marquee Topic, we are joined by Zach Crippen, co-founder of the Vernacular Podcast Network, of which this show is a part, and the co-host of Vernacular Podcast, The Lineup, and Breaking Pod, which is the other podcast that I am on that Zach and I do together, where we are doing a deep dive rewatch of Breaking Bad. And if you haven't already, please listen, rate, and subscribe to that podcast. Zach, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. And let me just echo that uh, that request to subscribe to breaking pod this has been a huge joy for me to do with you josh and i'm super excited about how the four full episodes that we've done have turned out and i'm excited to keep going through the breaking bad series it's really it's it's really an amazing series and it's been a lot of fun to do with you and i also want to say to you guys that i've really enjoyed the popcast lately we were in colorado springs last week with the whole family and as we were driving around in our rental car sally and i enjoyed listening to the uh, discussion about friends and we were laughing along and like agreeing and disagreeing together with you guys it was fun well thank you guys for listening and thanks for continuing to spread the word and thanks for giving us the platform to produce this uh, pop culture show so this week we are going to do a deep dive into avengers endgame this is the 22nd film in the marvel cinematic universe just a little background for you all It features a cast of more than 50 stars, and really the sheer number of that is insane to me. The fact that they managed to get Robert Redford, Michael Douglas, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Samuel L. Jackson, among others, for extremely small roles in this movie is just really incredible. Wait, pause. It's not that incredible. They all made a ton of money from probably like an hour of work. It's still amazing. It's still amazing. No, I think it is amazing because, I mean, is, is this the most formidable lineup of any movie ever? I mean, I can't it's gotta, think it's of It's got to be at least else. close. Yeah, it, it definitely has to be up there. And so as of the recording of this podcast on May 8th, 
2019, it has grossed more than $2.2 billion, which is more than every other film in history except for one, which is Avatar. And just in case you're wondering, this film had a budget of $356 million, which is also huge. And funny enough, it remade that entire budget just in the United States alone in its opening weekend, which was also crazy. That was the clairvoyant guess from from you, Maureen, right? That's you guessed right. it would make like 357 or something, and you were off by only $7 million. Yeah, I mean... Josh was underestimating the power of this movie. (laughs) So the film was directed by Joe and Anthony Russo, who also directed Captain America, the Winter Soldier, Captain America, Civil War and Avengers Infinity War. Now, there's been a lot written about the movie and a lot of discussion already in the about two weeks that the film has been out. So we'll start with some basics here on the podcast. But then for this conversation, I'd like to go a little deeper and I'd like to get into the heart of why we either like the movie or didn't like the movie and talk a little bit about the universe that Marvel has created and whether or not we like the hold it has on pop culture. So the first thing we'll start with is just each of our favorite moments from the film. Zach, we'll start with you. I think it's really hard to beat, and again, just a spoiler warning to people who are listening, if you don't want to hear the spoilers, we're about to to dive into those. So Yeah, this is your last warning. Yeah, last warning right here. I think it's really hard to beat the climactic scene where everybody comes back. Uh, when they open up the magic portals and bring back the half of the Marvel Universe that was wiped out by Thanos's finger snap in Infinity War. Because that scene where they're fighting Thanos and Thanos's army and they bring back literally the entire cast of the Avengers and Captain America says Avengers assemble. I mean, that it kind of gives you chills a little bit and it's really everything you wanted from the capstone film in the MCU, at least the first phase of the MCU. So I think that one's really hard to beat. Maybe another candidate much smaller in scale would be the time when Captain America wields the Thor hammer. I thought that was fun too, but I think I'm going to go with the moment, the climactic moment where the entire Avengers are reassembled and then go on to fight Thanos. So Captain America is standing by himself in the battlefield. He thinks that he's going to have to finish this fight by himself. And I agree. The portals open and everybody comes back. That's a pretty powerful moment. Maureen, how about you? Okay, so I agree that it's a powerful moment and visually it was stunning in the film. It wasn't my favorite, though. To me, that was a little bit like not expected, but like I felt a little bit like it was Game of Thrones, but like different universe, good versus evil, you know, like the Dothraki are getting like everyone's getting ready to charge. And, you know, like it was a little too much to me of like, okay, this is the moment we had all been waiting for. Too predictable. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it needed to happen. It was a great moment, but it wasn't my favorite because of the predictability. But when when Cap said Avengers Assemble, all I could think about was Ron Burgundy in Anchorman saying news team assemble. And so for me, I was yeah, like, totally, yeah. I was like, okay. My favorite moment, it's interesting that you guys picked the bigger moment because my moment and other close seconds were really small moments. My favorite moment, I think, was when Paul Rudd's character, Ant-Man, came back and ended up seeing his daughter and he hadn't seen her since she was a little girl. I think how many years? Five years have passed. And so this teenage girl opens the door and he just has this moment of like, oh, my gosh, Cassie, is that you? And she recognizes him. And I was like crying. It's, it was a very tender, very small moment. But I thought that they handled it really nicely. Other similar moments I really liked, the moments between Tony Stark and his daughter, the I Love You 3000s, kind of yeah, seeing Yeah, I love those that. as well. Those were great. And that grounded the film for me because sometimes, and I've seen a lot of these with Josh, and I didn't really like them at first, but they've really, really grown on me as I've gotten attached to the characters. But I think those moments of family, uh, the scene with Jeremy Renner and his family, who what's his character's name? Hawkeye? And his family before they all disappeared and like helping his daughter learn. Like those to me were the moments that I think really grounded this film and made it special in a way that some of the others necessarily weren't because it went a little bit deeper into the characters. So I really liked that. Yeah, and I think that's something that this film does really well. And one of the reasons that I like the movie so much is because it does balance the smaller moments with the bigger moments really nicely. My favorite moment is actually, it's a big moment, but it's also a small moment. And it's right after the Hulk Dr. Bruce Banner snaps his fingers to bring everybody back and they're in the Avengers compound and he does this and it's not this big moment of everybody just, you know, appearing right beside our heroes in the film. Instead, what we get are two small moments. The first is Jeremy Renner's character Hawkeye 
gets a phone call from his wife and the phone starts to ring and you just see the emotion building on his face. It's very small. You hear very little from her in that moment, but it's a very tender human moment. And then the other part of that is that Paul Rudd's character, he plays Ant-Man. He walks over to the window and looks outside and there's just life that has reappeared. There are birds flying around. There's just life in the air. And that moment to me was such, such a powerful moment in a way that I think it wouldn't have been if all of the characters who disappeared had just all of a sudden reappeared right there. Yeah, I I can get on board with that. So the next thing I want to talk about is favorite character in the film. We can do this quickly, but Maureen, let's start with you. Who was your favorite character in this film? Well, my favorite character visually is always Captain America because he's such a dreamboat and he was my close second in this one. But I have to say And and Thor's not much of a dreamboat in the movie. No, <laughs> no Thor Thor put on a few pounds of beer weight. Um instead of his six pack he had a keg. But I think that Tony Stark takes the cake for me in this one. And obviously it's you know, he and Cap are probably two of the main characters, I would say, in this one. Look at Maureen abbreviating Cap, just like she's in the Marvel Seriously. Universe. I wow. mean, I feel wow. like I've seen enough of them. We have a comic book aficionado among yeah, us. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so you're going to go with Captain America. No. I mean, I'm sorry, you're going to go with Tony Stark. Are you even listening? I am I'm going to go with Tony Stark. I will say, I think we'll talk about the ending a little bit later, but I was pretty mad about the ending, so I didn't love that aspect, but I think that Tony Stark is usually just so acerbic and like hard that this one you saw a little bit more into him, and I think I think he had a really nice evolution in this movie, so I'm, I'm going to say Tony Stark. Zach, how about you? I totally agree, and Maureen, I think that's a really astute observation that we see a softer Tony Stark, and I think... Really, I mean, he, he was the star of this one. And in a way, he's been the star of the Avengers universe. I mean, in a very practical sense, Robert Downey Jr. is the guy who makes the biggest checks from being in these movies. But he was also the guy who anchored the universe when they started with the original Iron Man in 2008. Uh, so long ago that George Bush was president. And that's how long this this uh, MCU phase has spanned. And uh, ever since then, I mean, he's been the central figure in the Avengers, even though Cap is the... Uh, you know, the technical leader of the Avengers, et cetera. It's been Iron Man who's sort of anchored them and and been the guy. So I think the ending was, it was frustrating. I agree with you, Maureen, but I also think it was fitting. But I really like how in this movie, they did soften Tony's character and he was very reluctant to join the Avengers to try to defeat Thanos because he, uh, I forget the exact words he used, but basically as he told Cap, he he loves what he has and that was his wife and his daughter and he didn't want to lose that. So basically as long as he couldn't lose, as long as, long as he wouldn't lose that, he was in, but he didn't want to lose that because he through the, through the experience of not defeating Thanos in infinity war, he had learned what was most important. And that was the, the people that he loves around him. So I thought that was really good and a, a nice soft Tony Stark to see, but because Maureen already picked Tony Stark and, slash Iron Man, I'm going to go with a different character. And this is someone who, um, you know, I, I, haven't really appreciated as much in the MCU, but I just thought was really great in this movie. And that's Ant-Man um, played by Paul Rudd. And I like Ant-Man in this number one, because we see the soft emotional side. Ma- Maureen, you already mentioned this when he sees his daughter, Cassie. But number two, I kind of feel like I am Ant-Man when I'm in the theater. Like Ant-Man is a pretty lame superhero. If we're being honest, he doesn't have any crazy powers except for the fact that he can get really, really small. He can't even fly. Or really, to, really big, Zach. Don't forget that. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, he, he can't even fly, though. He has to rely on the Wasp for that power. He basically, you know, unlocks the key to defeating Thanos by accident. Um, and he doesn't understand the technical side of it at all. He has to rely on Bruce Banner and Tony Stark for that. And so I say that I feel like I'm Ant-Man because as I'm watching the movie, I'm just watching this like, wow, this is so cool. I get to hang out with all these superheroes, right? Like I'm... I'm not one of them, but I get to be with them and experience this with them and, you know, fight Thanos alongside them. And that's pretty much what Paul Rudd slash Ant-Man is doing the entire movie. And so like that, that emotionally resonates with me. And I feel like I can empathize and sympathize with his character. And I really appreciate how the, uh, the Russo brothers put in this like very normal guy into the Avengers universe for us to enjoy with. Yeah. I was also going to say Ant-Man too, but my other choice would be, would be Chris Hemsworth as Thor. And I think that a lot of that has to do with, you know, when you first see him five years later when they do the time jump, he's put on a lot of weight. He seems like a character you can just laugh at. But I think that it's a really interesting look at how someone deals with grief and depression. And I think that there's a nice 
subtlety to the way that he plays that, you know, especially when we go back and he enters the timeline from his past and he sees his mom again. And you can sort of see that he, you know, he blames himself because he feels like he could have prevented all of this. And yet he wasn't able to, you know, that moment where he's able to talk to his mom from the past again and sort of get a new perspective showed sort of the depth of the character. And I think that Thor as a character has evolved so much, more so than I think any other character in the whole MCU. In fact, I was re-watching the original Avengers, it was on TV recently, and Thor in that movie, and going back to his first solo movie, he's very Shakespearean and very like proper. Yeah, and he's, he's so dramatic. <laughs> yeah, and he's evolved to be a more well-rounded character. And now he's he became more humorous in the third Thor movie, and and that was propelled in Infinity War and in this one as well. But he also has moments of like real depth. And I think that Chris Hemsworth does a nice job portraying that. I think it, it looks easier than it probably actually was. Okay, so now I want to jump into something a little bit deeper. And this is how Zach ended up coming on the podcast with us because we were having a conversation about the movie after we both saw it where Zach was saying that it wasn't one of his favorite Marvel films. And I was saying it was one of my like top tier films. And so herein we have a debate about whether or not this movie is is good or or not as good or whether it's just more of a spectacle. So Zach, I want to kick it to you first and I want you to explain sort of your reasoning for why you didn't love the movie, even if you liked it and enjoyed it, and then sort of talk about some of the issues you had with it. Sure, yeah. So I did like the movie. It, it's it's really kind of a feat if I don't like a Marvel movie. There's only, I don't know, maybe two or three that I genuinely don't like. Uh, you know, Thor, The Dark World, uh, probably Ant-Man and the Wasp. I, I don't like those, uh, but that's probably it. So if I don't like a Marvel movie, it's because like I have serious problems with it. Um, in this case, I liked it. I thought it was fine. Uh, I thought it was probably on par with Avengers Age of Ultron, which is the second Avengers movie, um, in that it was an enjoyable, uh, you know, romp through two to three hours in this case. And, uh, you know, I was able to get emotionally invested in the characters and, uh, you know, have a sort of parasympathetic response to the various scenes. So in that sense, it was good. And I think, you know, it entertained me for three hours, which is um, sort of the first aim of any filmmaker but I think I would give this one like a six out of ten if I was giving it a, a rating on a scale of one to ten uh ten being the best one being the worst six out of ten and I would not put it in the top even the top ten of Marvel movies um you know my top my, my top three are probably um Iron Man one the, the original and then probably Thor Ragnarok at number two and then probably the first Avengers at number three and for me, in, um, Endgame doesn't even crack the top ten, and that's because of a number of a number of problems. I think one, um, Endgame takes out some of my favorite characters or alters them in a way that I don't appreciate. Um, I don't like how Iron Man dies at the end. I don't like how they have made Thor a sort of fat and apathetic character through most of this film, and. Um, and I don't like how they have Cap ultimately surrender the shield and like, you know, give up the burden of being Captain America at the end of the film. So I don't like that. Uh, I also don't like how they sort of emphasize the characters that you really don't care about that much. I think like Hawkeye had too big of a role in the film. I think that Nebula had like way too big of a role in the film. Nobody likes Nebula. Nobody really cares about Nebula. Nobody was expecting Nebula to be like the unheralded star of the movie, but that's exactly what happened. And I think along with some of those decisions to use those characters in certain ways, there are some pretty big plot holes that open up. Like, I mean, and I think anytime you do time travel, it's going to be really tricky. And yeah, we have wait, we have to talk about this time travel thing. I that was yeah. the first thing I said when we left the movie. I was like, they made such a big deal about being like, it's not as easy as Back to the Future, and like it's right, all this. Right. And then they did all of those things that they said they couldn't do, <laughs> yeah. like talk to their past selves and like go in loops and I was like that was the most egregious like okay let me let me jump in really quick here about the time travel because when we first saw it I also was a little bit confused but when I went back to see it again I was more focused on like does this make sense and there are some gaps in the time travel stuff but I actually thought that the way that they did it was pretty interesting because the way that they talked about it if if nothing else it made you think that they knew what they were talking about. 
on the surface. Now, I think, Zach, to your point, any movie that deals with time travel is going to have issues because logically it just doesn't make sense. If you go back and change things, then the future as we know it wouldn't have happened. But the way that they talk about it in, in terms of like another version of yourself, so you go back and you sort of alter another version and then... Not only that, but then to go back after the fact and correct that altered version so that the future that you know is preserved, that actually made some sense. There's that kind of didactic scene where Bruce Banner is talking to the Ancient One, right? Right. And she she like uses magic to conjure up this three-dimensional model to like illustrate to Bruce Banner the perils of time travel and all that. And I mean, I thought that was like a little bit overwrought because that was clearly for the audience's benefit. But even then, it didn't make sense and didn't really clarify what they were doing and how they had to do it. There are just a lot of other questions I have too. You know, Gamora, for example. Gamora is sacrificed in Infinity War by Thanos to get the Soul Stone, right? And yet she's able to come back from... That's supposed to be an irreversible decision, right? There's no coming back from that. But she's able to come back from before that moment with Thanos through a portal to the present moment in Endgame. And yet when Black Widow is sacrificed by Hawkeye or really she she kind of sacrifices herself but for for Hawkeye to get the soul stone she somehow is like permanently and irrevocably lost and nobody thinks about how Gamora was able to come back from that you know and same thing like I don't know little things like when Tony Stark snaps his fingers at the very end you know you're telling me that like he is sitting there with the power of the universe and the six infinity stones on his hand and he can't uh like heal himself from that I don't know it was just there was a little bit of a tough pill to swallow I think uh, lots of things don't quite make sense in the movie. So, you know, you have to suspend suspend belief a little bit. And and maybe that's just par for the course on a comic book movie, but I felt like it was a little bit more so in this one. Okay, let's talk about the Tony Stark dying situation because I was yeah. very angry. Not only, it wasn't just that he died, but it was because they made such a big deal about showing how he had changed and how he had his daughter and that was the one thing he didn't want to lose and then all of a sudden he was the only one who died like you could have killed off any of those other heroes we still would have been sad but like none of them had families thor bye-bye okay we're sad but like no five-year-old little girl is gonna have her entire life made worse because her father's not there like that was hard for me and josh said he was like well that's why they picked him because it has the most emotional impact but that was really frustrating to me because I feel like the world got better for everyone except for Tony Stark's daughter and her world. And Pepper Potts. Yes. And their world was wrecked. Now, I think it was interesting because they set it up and there was a little bit of foreshadowing. I don't know if you picked up on this, Zach, but when Tony met with his dad when they were back in time and Tony was, you know, he, his dad didn't know it was him, but his dad said something. It was the day Tony was being born. And his dad said something like, you know, I've always done things like for my own benefit like I want to get better about I want to get better for my son about like doing things for the greater good not just for my good or something and for me I was like that's clearly the moment where Tony like makes the decision or could harken back to that moment when he's making the decision should I choose to keep my life with my daughter and my wife or should I do you know whatever for the greater good but I also just felt like it was needless I would have been very happy if he came back and he you know had suffered in some way but he was able to be with his family. I totally agree. And and one of the things that I have appreciated about the Marvel universe in general is that characters, the good characters at least, don't really die. I mean, and as, as silly as that sounds, like I don't I don't go to a comic book movie wanting to see, you know, like a a cartoonized version of like Saving Private Ryan. I want to I I kind of want to suspend belief to such a degree that like all the good guys win and all the bad guys don't. And that's sort of the way it is. And like, one, I, I mentioned that I really liked Iron Man. And, and one of the reasons I like Iron Man is because the original Iron Man, the movie, is that it's 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 such a like localized drama. There's no intergalactic battle. There's no massive cast of superheroes. It's Iron Man versus this guy who in the middle of the Middle Eastern desert somewhere is using American military technology to, to try to kill people right and it's like a very small manageable thing and iron man deals with that and then moves on and there are more movies to come from that this is like it's it's this is much more grand in scope and i just think that like it just got a little bit overwrought and a little bit dramatic at the end which i didn't really appreciate you know i I mentioned that thor ragnarok is my second favorite marvel movie of all time and i think that's because it's so like self-aware and self-referential in it's sort of like poking fun at the 
over dramatic nature of the rest of the Marvel universe. And so, and then Josh, you mentioned that you sort of see Thor's character really develop in Ragnarok. And I love it. I forget the name of the New Zealand director's name who made that movie, but his take on the Marvel, the, the MCU, the Marvel universe is just great because there are so many scenes in that movie where like, they're just, they're poking fun at everyone else's attempts to be like world saving a drama queens. Um, and I really, I really like that. And I felt like Endgame sort of strayed a little bit too far in that direction. It didn't feel like a fun romp as much as it did like a vast, overdramatic tragedy. Okay, so I think to your point, Zach, about it being overwrought, it being this big comic book movie, I actually think that's one of the reasons why I like and appreciate the movie so much. Now, I said on the podcast last week that I would give it a nine and a half out of 10. Now, that was probably because we had literally just seen the movie about two hours before we recorded the podcast, and I was sort of riding this this high of having seen it. So I would probably take that down to maybe like an eight, eight and a half out of 10, having had a little bit more time to reflect on it. But I think to your point about it being, you know, this big comic book movie, I actually think that that's really impressive that they are able to build from something as simple as Iron Man and build an entire world that so many people care about. And the fact that you get this emotional payoff at the end of this huge first phase where Tony dies and Captain America retires, for me, I think that they are in character because you have to think about the fact that these people have grown and evolved over time. And, you know, the fact that you have a big splash in the last movie makes sense to me. I mean, you want to go out with a bang. I mean, you wouldn't want, you know, Endgame to end with like this localized, you know, arms dealer dealing in the Middle East. It would just be totally a huge letdown bringing all of these characters together and then, you know, finding out that Jeff Bridges is like still dealing arms in the Middle East. It's like, it's not that interesting and it's not that exciting when they've built up to this whole other big thing. Yeah, no, I agree with that. But do you think there's a way to a, a way to not make the stakes feel quite as dramatic? Like, is, is there I guess, is there a way to and this is kind of what I think Ragnarok did very well. They like sort of they did intergalactic conflict in a fun, low stakes kind of way. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think the difference is that that was a movie that was about specific characters. So it was about Thor and Loki and it was about the Hulk right, who also right. appeared. This is about the entire universe. And I think that when you bring all these people together, you have to have a conflict that feels as big as all of the characters that are coming together. So the thing that I want to say, chime in about this whole Tony Stark dying moment is I actually really liked the choice. Now, there are practical reasons that they did this. And I think part of that is that Robert Downey Jr. is ready to hang up the Iron Man suit like he's been doing this for 11 years now. And he's, you know, despite having made a lot of money doing it, I think he's ready to move on to other projects and not have to think about this. Not saying he won't come back in some capacity in the future because, you know, money talks and, you know, he might show up for that. But there's got to be at least a cameo in his future, right? Yeah. I mean, at some point, whether it's like a flashback or whatever. But I just feel like his moment at the end where he decides to sacrifice himself for the greater good of humanity is is the most real moment we get from Tony Stark. And it's a perfect end to like the evolution of him as a character, because as you mentioned in the first movie, and as Maureen was talking about too, he's very acerbic. He's very, you know, he's very crass and he he doesn't really care about other people and he's evolved. And it's really nice to see a character that has had the opportunity to evolve over the course of a bunch of movies. And I think that having, him sacrifice himself despite the fact that he knows he'll be leaving behind a daughter and a wife who who need him for the greater good of humanity. I mean, that's kind of like what is best about that moment for me, because, you know, you look at him and yes, it will be harder for his daughter. But, you know, he's thinking about the fact that Ant-Man has a family and the fact that Hawkeye has a family and the fact that all of these people he cares about and has grown with, that they have families and lives too, that with his sacrifice, they can be brought back. And I think that his daughter will grow up to understand that too. 
Well, and yeah, no, I agree. You get a really nice moment with his wife, Pepper Potts, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, acknowledging that like as Tony is dying, she's not crying or, you know, saying, why did you do this? She just looks at him and she's like, we're all going to be OK. Like it's like this. I don't know. I thought it was a very Zen accepting reaction of the fact that her world was about to be turned upside down, too. But kind of giving him that final moment of peace and acknowledgement was nice. Hey, I have a quick question. Is there a passing of the torch, do you guys think, from Tony to Pepper Potts as the new Iron Man? It's possible, but based on the trailer for the new Spider-Man movie that came out just a couple days ago, it seems like they're going to do the passing of the torch from Iron Man to Spider-Man. I hate that, okay. by the way. I hate it. Yeah, that's that's kind of weird. I hate yeah. it, and I I hated the fact in the movie when they, you know, Tony like put his daughter to bed, and then he saw a picture of. Peter Parker of Spider-Man and was like wistfully looking at him like his long lost son like mm, I don't buy that no way that you would think <laughs> yeah. about a kid who you mentored the same way you would think about your child yeah I mean they had a special bond but not that special not not like father son special no I I don't know I think it's it's not quite at that level but I do think that they built up enough in Captain America Civil War and then Spider-Man Homecoming where you believe that Tony really does care for this because remember all of that happened before he had a child he was mentoring and he knew this person before he had a family so it could have been his pseudo family regardless of whether he mentioned it out loud I think that they did enough legwork there maybe not they maybe they could have done some more but I think they did enough to pay off that moment of Peter Parker being really emotional about Tony and Tony being emotional about Peter Parker. The other thing that I wanted to mention about this is that I read this this article about a deleted scene that we didn't get that they had in the original cut of the movie that maybe might have made you all feel better about this Tony Stark moment, especially you, Maureen, because you felt it's, it was sort of like emotionally hollow that he just decided to sacrifice himself and leave his daughter behind. But there was a moment where they cast a teenage version of his daughter Morgan and they were going to have him once he snapped his fingers go to this place that we see Thanos go to when he snaps his fingers in Infinity War where he sees uh, little Gamora and they were going to have them have a moment together where you know he sort of sees her grown up and sees that she's fine they decided to take it out because they didn't think it held enough weight and it didn't read quite as well when they were watching it back but you know i think that that moment but I, mean, I can see that it would feel a little overwrought to me yeah i think that i'm a little higher on this movie than you guys now you know to your point about the the inconsistencies in the film i totally get that but then it it is a comic book movie i mean we're dealing with like an alien race that's invading the you know the earth so i think that if you take that and then put it next to the the time travel stuff, it's like, all right, well, it's all sort of ridiculous, you know, when it comes to- Wait, are you saying you don't believe in aliens, Josh? Well, you know, uh, Thanos, he's he's pretty hard to, (laughs) he's pretty hard to believe in. Can I talk about one more problem with the movie? Uh, Just real real, real quickly. Yeah, yeah. So Zach Cram of The Ringer has this great article that that everyone should read. It it basically talks about what he calls the, the MCU's power problem. And he points out that the- power differentials between these characters are always variable and we never know what we're going to get. So for example, we see in Avengers Infinity War, Thor and Loki on their ship, right, getting destroyed by Thanos. And then the Hulk just starts beating Thanos to a pulp until Thanos leverages his power stone to defeat Hulk. And then we see, you know, fast forward to Endgame, we see Thanos without any Infinity Stones taking on literally the entire Avengers universe. And besting every single one of them even without he without the infinity stones and then he gets the infinity stones and you know etc but I, I do think this is another inconsistency that the marvel universe has that is not easily solved because it's never clear who's more powerful and you know thanos in one moment looks like captain marvel or the hulk or captain america could easily defeat him and then in the other in the other scene he's defeating all of them simultaneously zach to your point about the power problem I I can totally see that. And I've read several articles about how they sort of mishandled Captain Marvel, especially because if you saw the film about her, her standalone film that came out earlier this year, you'll know that she's like the most powerful superhero that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has pretty much. And so there's no reason why she shouldn't be able to defeat Thanos. I think that they definitely didn't know how to handle her. And, you know, that aside, I think that relatively that wasn't something I was thinking about when I saw this movie it's something that upon reflection that I can say okay yeah that makes sense they in that article that you you mentioned they talk about how in Captain America the Winter Soldier Captain America can barely defeat like this random soldier 
and it's like and then all of a sudden he's going toe to toe with Thanos and like able to wield you know Thor's hammer and so that is a little bit of inconsistency but you know for the most part that didn't take me out of the movie when I was watching it it's only upon reflection that I can say okay I can see where there are some inconsistencies here the other thing about that though is that characters do change and they can grow so from film to film I wouldn't expect them to stay at the same level but when you know when you're seeing them go from like uber powerful to like not powerful and then back again that's where i can see the point of that being a problem so i just kind of want to say i know you guys each shared like why you liked or disliked the film i am not a comic book aficionado i don't know anything about this universe other than the movies i've seen But I enjoyed this one. Like, I don't think I would see it again in theaters. But when it comes out on DVD and Josh inevitably wants to rent it, like, I'm game. Like, I think that it was enjoyable and it had enough of, like, an emotional, like, through line for me to follow. And I really liked piecing together all of their different stories in one. Like, that to me was really cool, the way that they wove it together. So time travel inaccuracies and, like, sadness aside, I think they did a good job of bringing it together for one final film with you know, these amazing cast members. The last thing I want to talk about is, are you guys looking forward to the future of Marvel? I mean, like they've talked already about the fact that this is only the beginning of what I assume is their world domination of film. And do you think that their domination is good for the future of filmmaking in general? So I I can kick this off. I am sort of agnostic on whether or not I think the domination is good for filmmaking in general. I think I would say I'm pretty bullish on filmmaking even if that means we're moving away from traditional box office models because the rise of the Netflix, Hulu, now Disney streaming thing means that there's going to be a lot more avenues for creators, especially lower budget creators, to get their work in front of people. And I think that's good, even if it means that you know AMC and Regal and Cinemark are, are not filling seats as much. So I, I think in general, I'm optimistic about the future of cinema, even if I'm less optimistic about the future of movie going per se. Um, as far as the future of Marvel, I am excited about the future of Marvel. Um, even though I didn't like this sort of capstone to the first phase of the MCU, I like the way some of the things are headed. And Maureen, you were talking already in this conversation about how you see some glimmers of things in Endgame, like Hawkeye's relationship with his family, um, Ant-Man's relationship with his daughter, or uh, Tony Stark's relationship with his family. And I like that sort of softer look at some of the Marvel superheroes that we're getting. And I'm hoping that as we move into a, what I think will be sort of a more subdued, maybe more localized phase of the MCU, we'll get more of that. So I know like Black Widow's coming out with um, her own movie. Um, there's there's more of the Spider-Man. And Spider-Man has always been more, you know, your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. It's always been more of a local saga. Although Far From Home might be a little bit different from that. But I think we're moving into a softer phase of the MCU that will give us a little bit more personal up close time with these characters and get a little bit more of a glimpse of them from a human side and show a softer side. And I, I am looking forward to that. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity there. Hopefully they won't squander it. But if, if they can do what they've done with some of the other character centric movies in the first phase of MCU, I think we'll we'll be in for a treat. I agree with you on the point of character centric. I think that holds a lot of weight with me. And I love that storytelling. I saw the preview for the next Spider-Man movie, and I'm not that excited about it. I'm sure I'll end up seeing it. But to me, I think what I'm realizing is that I like the more complicated, like, space-involved or other universe-involved storylines better than the local ones. Because the local ones, it's like, that's just unbelievable because it's in our world and that doesn't happen here in real life kind of thing. Whereas when it happens in space or they're traveling through time or whatever, I can kind of suspend my disbelief a little bit more. I don't know. Jury's still out for me. I think I've liked it this far. I'm sure I'll end up seeing the other ones, but I think they have big shoes to fill. Okay, well, I think that will about do it for our, our conversation. This was really fun. Zach, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you, guys. I really appreciated it and look forward to breaking down the next Marvel movie whenever that comes. When, when's Spider-Man coming out? In July. Yeah, Zach, you and I should do a, a podcast about it since it sounded like Maureen was saying, Josh, blah, blah. go forth and see it without me. <laughs> let's do it. Let's let's uh, let's do that. Yeah, I actually haven't seen the trailer at all, so I'll be going in totally blind. Perfect. Um, but I'm, I've always been a Spider-Man fan, so I'm sure I'll I'm sure I'll find myself in a theater. Yeah, we'll we'll come back with that discussion in July. Sounds good. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, Zach. Okay, honey. Time for teasers. Yes, thank you to Zach for a great conversation about Marvel and Avengers Endgame. 
Maureen, should I kick off with my teaser first? Yes. So I saw this article on TheRinger.com, which is one of my favorite pop culture sports websites. And the article was about the song All Star by Smash Mouth, which came out, I didn't remember this, but 20 years ago in 1999. Start coming and they don't stop coming Fed to the rules and I hit the ground running Didn't make sense not to live for fun Your brain gets smart but your head gets dumb So much to do, so much to see So what's wrong with taking the back streets? You'll never know if you don't go You'll never shine if you don't glow Hey now, you're an all-star Get your game on, go play Hey now, you're a rock star Get the show on, get paid article is about how the song has had a life of its own and sort of has lived on longer than the band members ever thought. It's sort of like a retrospective and a deep dive into the song and about how it was created. In fact, it wasn't even on the first cut of the album that it ended up on, Astro Lounge, which was the Smash Mouth album that came out in 1999. So if you're a fan of the song or if you've heard it at all, you should definitely read this article. It's really fascinating to learn about the history of the song and the band members and how the song has lived on longer than anybody ever thought it might. Maureen, what is your teaser? My teaser is short and sweet. The next season of The Bachelorette starts next Monday. So mark your calendars, everybody. Hannah B. coming at ya. Mark your calendars, gentlemen. Get away from the TV as fast <laughs> as humanly possible. I'm interested to see. She's been met with mixed reviews. It is not who I thought that they would pick as the Bachelorette. So I don't know. It's always entertaining TV to me. So on the next podcast, Maureen can give her first impressions of Hannah B as the Bachelor. At Bachelorette. Bachelorette. Not the Bachelor. The Bachelorette. All right. Thanks for another great episode. We will talk to you soon. You can leave us feedback, comments, or questions on each episode by going to vernacularpodcast.com slash popcast. We would love to hear from you and would especially love to hear what you want to hear about on the show. You can also reach us by emailing thepopcast at vernacularpodcast.com. Please also subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. We put out a new one every Friday, and if it's not too much trouble, please drop us a rating or a review. It helps other people find our show. We'll be back next week, as always, sitting cross-legged on our bedroom floor with a brand new episode. Bye, everybody. Bye. Guys, we have to stop because what the heck is MCU? The Marvel Cinematic Universe. Okay. I, I bet there was someone listening who also didn't know that. So you're welcome, someone.